0: Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. And the Holy Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength our Redeemer, our Consoler. Would you come, Holy Spirit, breath of God, spirit of wisdom and of understanding, of counsel, of might, spirit of knowledge. Over these next few minutes, may only truth be spoken and may only truth be received. Amen. Amen. We're going to do something just a little bit different this morning. I think I've said this before. Sometimes uh, as someone who preaches and teaches regularly, you've got to write a sermon to get it out of the way. And so I've done that. Uh, I think I've done this a few times. And again, I think it's a good sermon, but it's just not, I needed to get it out of the way. And here's what I mean by that. If you open up your liturgy booklets to the uh, inside cover, uh, you will see a poem there titled A Tale of Two Gardens. Now, originally, when we were putting together this booklet a few weeks ago, we realized we were just, by nature of what we had, going to have some extra pages. And so originally, I was like, oh, well, I know what to do on the inside cover. I'm going to put one of my favorite surprise Malcolm Guite poems for the Christmas tide season. And so let's just add it there to be able to take up some space and people can read it as they want to. And then when I got here this morning, and again, was just trying to sort of kill a little bit of time while I was waiting for a few things, I began to read through this poem again this year. And what I was struck by was some of the same themes that I think we see in this story of Jesus' parents taking him to the temple 40 days after his birth. Of Jesus as an infant being held by two people who had waited their entire lives to be seen to see the Christ, to see the one who would come to redeem Israel, to be a consolation and a redeemer to the people of God, the way in which jesus 's parents come, thus the way Jesus comes, all of these different things, even sort of the what can oftentimes be thought of as a footnote at the end of the gospel reading that Jesus and his family return to Nazareth and he grows up, he grows up like all of us have grown up. And as I was rereading through this poem, a lot of those same themes are here. And so I'm going to do what I'm usually opposed to doing, which is I'm going to wait to read the poem and it's full till the end. And instead, I'm going to invite us to go a few stanzas at a time. And I want to sort of pull some of the themes that we hear in the gospel reading this morning in what I think is one of my favorite poems by Malcolm Gite, if you're not aware of him, I can go on and on. I'd love to introduce you to him. Uh, he's a uh, a poet priest in England uh, who typically writes sonnets and occasionally writes long form poems. Um, and this is, I think, one of his one of his best. And so, the place I want to start in this poem is with those first two stanzas, because I think in this stanza, as we listen for me, it it is a reminder and carries us into these 12 days of Christmas. The 12 days of Christmas are not just a song. It is part of the season of Christmas. Christmas is not just one day. It certainly begins on the 25th, but carries us through to the beginning of the epiphany season. But listen to these two stanzas. God gave us all a garden once and walked with us at Eve. You can see what he did there that we might know him face to face with no need to believe, but we denied and hid from him, concealing our own shame. Yet he still came to look for us and call us each by name. Yet he still came to look for us and call us each by name. This is one of the reasons why the Christmas season is intertwined with the eternal year, with this liturgical calendar that we as a community live into, that our our time is dictated by. It's not just a story outside of the greater story of us and the greater story of God. It It is at the very heart of it. that even in our denial and hiding from God, of our working to conceal our own shame or to numb it out in the many ways that we have tried and that we will continue to try, that over and over and over and over and over again, we can hear the words, yet God still comes to look for us. We are not people wandering in the darkness looking for God. God has first come looking for us. And any finding that we do of God is in response to us already being found. Christmas is about more than the tinsel, more than the presents. It's about the God who comes looking for us and who calls each of us by name. These next four stanzas, he found us And where did he find us? Where we hid from him. He clothed us in his grace, but still we turned our back on him and would not see his face. So now he comes to us again, not as a Lord most high, but weak and helpless as we are, that we might hear him cry. And he who clothed us in our need lies naked in the straw that we might wrap him in our rags, whom once we fled in awe. The strongest comes in weakness now, a stranger to the door. The king forsakes his palaces and dwells amongst the poor. Luke tells us that when Mary and Joseph are coming into the temple, 40 days after Jesus's birth, which was something all of this is, is heavily dictated by uh, the law. You can find, I believe it's in Leviticus 12, gives us a rough outline of what you are to do with your firstborn son and consecrating him within the temple. And in Leviticus chapter 12, there are a number of different sacrifices that are described depending on how much you got in the bank account. And if you notice from what we heard earlier, what do Jesus's parents come with? Two pigeons. In case you're wondering, two pigeons was not the sacrifice of the 1%. It wasn't even the sacrifice of the middle class. Ideally, what you were supposed to bring to the temple was a lamb. And Luke, by telling us that Jesus' parents are bringing two pigeons or two turtle doves, is telling us that Jesus' family, both at its beginning and more than likely for the vast majority of Jesus' upbringing, is not well off. They are eking by. And it's not the eking by of the middle class with high inflation rates. It's the eking back. It's the eking through of the poorest of the poor. For those who rub two pennies together, hoping that somehow there will be more. That is how, and this wasn't, this wasn't a surprise. Jesus didn't grow up and go, I thought the father and I talked about coming into a family with a little bit more. This was, a div- this was an intentional move by the divine trinity. This was not a mistake. And there is something about this, that in God's great wisdom and in God, because again, there is certainly beauty that you have the boundless God The God who the psalmist tells us is not impressed by cattle on a thousand hills. There is something about that God coming as a baby, vulnerable, lying naked in the straw, coming to a marginalized people and an impoverished family. There is certainly something about that I think we're we're intended to reflect on, to meditate on, the juxtaposition that the God beyond all takes on human form, and the form that he chooses to take is not one of power and is not one of prestige. And I don't, and I'm not intending for this in any way, because oftentimes this can get twisted and used to make someone feel guilty about how much they have or how much they do not have. And I don't think that's God's intention. In fact, if anything, God warns everyone, regardless of how much we have in our bank accounts or how much we don't have, there's a warning to all of us. But I think it begins to speak into that if this is how Jesus comes, and us as the church being the body of Christ, it begins to reshape if we will allow it to our imagination for what it looks like to follow jesus of who it is that we are called to be in the midst of and to draw near i have an old friend that will often say if you begin to lose sense of where jesus is go spend time amongst the poor and there you will find him because that's where jesus is that's why jesus in matthew 25 will tell his followers when you fed the hungry you fed me and when you gave water to the thirsty You gave water to me. I'm not a big one for, as a pastor going, here are my big hopes and goals for us as a congregation. Here's the grand vision for 2024. That is exhausting. And nine times out of 10, you hit the last quarter and it just becomes white knuckle legalism to make it happen. But here is one thing that I just sort of have sensed the nudge to offer. Is And at least maybe as a way of saying it is offering it as a hope. That in 2024, we increasingly become the kind of people who are moving toward the poor and toward the marginalized. And we already do this in a lot of ways. We do this through giving away 20% of our budget to our Shalom partners who touch parts of the world and people within our community that you and I can just not enter in. We're not equipped to do that. And we're certainly going to continue doing that. But I think about even as we were working through our remember and reimagine uh, conversations as we were moving into this space, one of the things that we said we were excited about is that Belmont Baptist, uh, the church next door, for generations has had incredible mercy ministry here in this neighborhood. They have a food kitchen, they have a clothes shelter, they have a clothes closet, they have loads of love. And time and time again, when I check in with them, when I talk with them, the thing that they continue to express is their congregation is not getting any younger and they're having to back off more and more on what it is they are available to do. And so while I think there is something for each of us to sit with and what does it look like to move toward the poor and the marginalized in our neighborhood, in our communities, in our world, I think there's something too for us as the people, as a congregation, as a church, is to begin to think How do we come alongside those who are already doing it? And where is God inviting us to come alongside? And my hope would be in ways that put us in proximity, not just the very American way of let's throw money at it. And there we go. Because while I think that helps, there is something about sitting across the table, shoulder to shoulder with those on the margin and with those in need. And in them, one of the things I think we see is christ is christ the next two stanzas they're at the bottom and where we hurt he hurts with us and when we weep he cries he knows the heart of all our hurts the inside of our sighs He does not look down from above, but gazes up at us. That we might take him in our arms, who always cradles us. That we might take him in our arms, who always cradles us. One of the things that Simeon says to Mary, and you can imagine there's this moment, there's nothing impressive about Jesus, Like, I don't know if you've thought about this. Jesus being brought into the temple is not glowing. He's not, you know, his parents aren't carrying him in and there's a halo by which Simeon and Anna are easily able to identify him, which that's a whole nother thing of their, their sense and their response to the nudging and the prompting of the spirit. But Jesus isn't glowing. He looks like just any ordinary first century Jewish baby boy. His parents are not impressive. There is no, uh, the angels and the shepherds have long gone. There's no procession. There is no music. They just look like a family of three, a very new family of three, a very poor family of three entering in. And Simeon says this incredible praise. For any of us who pray with a prayer book, Simeon's song is included in a number of the offices. But what I want to call our attention to with these two stanzas is what he says to Mary. What does he say to Mary? I wish we had time to look at the Magnificent, her prayer following Elizabeth, recognizing that she was pregnant with the Savior. But in many ways, Simeon goes, Your prayer will be answered. Because Mary's prayer is not a doe eyed, lovely thing, it is a rebellious war song sung by a teenage Palestinian Jew in the face of the empire. And Simeon's answer to her is, it will will be answered. People will be divided. Thrones will be thrown down. But he also says to her, and a sword will pierce your heart. And a sword will pierce your heart. And of course, what Simeon is prophesying is what will come true. And I wonder how many times Mary thought about those words standing at the foot of the cross. She is one of just a few people to never leave Christ's side. We're told at the foot of the cross as Mary, the mother of Jesus, a few of the other women, (laughs) the men are all hiding. Their doors are all locked. Except for John the Baptist, John the Beloved, standing with the women and with Mary at the foot of the cross. Where Jesus' side is pierced, but her heart is pierced like no other. She's a mother and she watches her son die. And so Simeon is speaking to the suffering that Mary will endure that is beyond any form of suffering. But he's also speaking to, and we've already said this, Jesus is gonna grow up in an impoverished, marginalized community. His life is going to be one of suffering. Even throughout his earthly ministry and for those who draw near to him and follow him, he warns them and he warns us. If you're expecting white picket fences, wide paths and easy goings, I'm probably not the savior you want. Because to follow me, to move in toward those on the margins or to even just live more fully into what it means to be the people of God and followers of Jesus will mean that we suffer. And Jesus is letting, or a Simeon is letting Mary know and by virtue of letting her know, letting us all know. And again, Jesus doesn't suffer just for the sake of suffering but as Malcolm so wisely picks up on, that where, he hurt, that where we hurt, he hurts with us. That when we weep, he cries. And he knows the heart of all our hurts, the inside of our sighs. Not just because he's God, but because he has sighed those sighs too. He has cried those cries too. It is the knowledge rooted in experience. That we might take him in our arms who also cradles us. Simeon actually, and we're not told if like there's a conversation and he asked Mary to hold Jesus, it almost, the way Luke writes it, sounds like Simeon just kind of runs up and grabs the baby, which is a little bit of a, as a parent, feels like a panic moment. But you can imagine Simeon holding this baby as we read the next few stanzas. And if we welcome him again with open hands and heart, he'll plant his garden deep in us and the end from which we start. And in that garden, there's a tomb whose stone is rolled away where we and all we've ever loved were lowered in the clay. But lo, the tomb is empty now and clothed in living light his ransom people walk with one who came on Christmas night. So come Lord Jesus, find in me the child you came to save. Stoop tenderly with wounded hands and lift me from the grave. Simeon and Anna hold in their hands the one they've longed for, the consoler and the redeemer of the people, the one they've prayed for, the one that they've looked for, And part of this is because God is the God who keeps promises made. But also because, and this is what I'm often most struck by with these two because they were the kind of people who looked and saw Jesus. They were people who had created space and made space to look for the one who was coming. There's a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. There was was an obedience. There was a movement when, when nudged by Holy Spirit to move toward Christ. There's an openness. There's an openness. And what is the reward of their openness? To take him in their arms, the one who cradled them. Toward the end of the reading, we're told that Jesus and his family returned to Nazareth. They go home and Luke writes, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. And so look with me to this very last stanza in this poem. Be with us all, Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And keep us close and true. Be with us till that kingdom come where we will be with you. Jesus goes home and Jesus grows up. I think this is more than just a detail in the story. Because in my mind, what what comes is Paul's words to the church in Galatia of his longing for Christ to be formed in them. In me and you, for Christ to come home in me and for Christ to grow up in me. Be with us all, Emmanuel. Keep us close and true. Be with us till that kingdom comes where we will be with you. Jesus. The invitation for you and for me is to create the space in our lives to cooperate with God where we are, as we are, how we are, and to allow Christ to grow up in us. And as I always say, what we will find in welcoming Jesus into the home of our lives is we will find in that welcoming that he is already at home in us. And so to close, I wanna read through this poem in its full. And at the conclusion, we'll just sit for a few moments in silence. We don't need this booklet back, so feel free to take it with you. Sit with it over these last few days of Christmas. But for now, let's listen with open ears. God gave us all a garden once and walked with us at Eve that we might know him face to face with no need to believe. But we denied and hid from him, concealing our own shame. Yet he still came to look for us and call us each by name. He found us where we hid from him. He clothed us in his grace. But still we turned our backs on him and would not see his face. So now he comes to us again, not as a Lord most high, but weak and helpless as we are, that we might hear him cry. And he who clothed us in our need lies naked in the straw, that we might wrap him in our rags, whom once we fled in all. The strongest comes in weakness now, a stranger to our doors, The king forsakes his palaces and dwells amongst the poor. And where we hurt, he hurts with us. And when we weep, he cries. He knows the heart of all our hurts, the inside of our sighs. He does not look down from above, but gazes up at us, that we might take him in our arms who always cradles us. And if we welcome him again with open hands and heart, he'll plant his garden deep in us, the end from which we start. And in the garden, there's a tomb whose stone is rolled away, where we and all we've ever loved were lowered in the clay. But lo, the tomb is empty now and clothed in living light. His ransom people walk with one who came on Christmas night. So come, Lord Jesus, find in me the child you came to save. Stoop tenderly with wounded hands and lift me from the grave. Be with us all, Emmanuel, and keep us close and true. Be with us till that kingdom comes, where we will be with you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.